Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, I have Jacob Cooper with me on the show. Jacob is a clinical social worker, certified Reiki master, and certified hypnotherapist who specializes in past life regression therapy. Inspired by his near-death experience and transformative encounters, he facilitates spiritual awareness and empowerment through life-changing seminars. His new book, Life After Breath, is out now. Welcome, Jacob. Thank you so much for having me on as an honored guest on your program, Amy. Thank you. Hi, we made it to March, so now you have your March public service announcements. If you have not rated and reviewed the podcast yet, please do so. Also subscribe. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts, Instagram, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere. Also, my course is coming. It is going to begin April 19th. So that will be the first day of the course. If you are not signed up for my newsletter yet or have not put yourself on the wait list for the course, you will not hear much about it. If you are on my newsletter and wait list, you will hear a lot about it. So make sure you do that. Sign up at dramyrobbins.com. Also, please make sure you follow me on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins and stay tuned for another great month full of amazing podcast episodes. I feel like, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but the content keeps getting better. So hopefully you're enjoying it and here's to springtime. Can you start by telling us the story of your NDE? Because it's unusual in terms of how old you were when it happened. Yeah, yeah. It's very, I mean, NDEs as it is, they're becoming more mainstream and more well-known. But, um, you know, the age that I had it is not too conventional. Um, I was the age of three years old. At the time, I had a highly contagious upper respiratory virus called pertussis, otherwise known as whooping cough. And I went to a playground with family, friends, um, you know, my babysitter at the time and my sibling. And I, you know, due to the uh, whipping cough, I suffocated when I was going in a playground, climbing a ladder on a slide. And, you know, really once I lost my breath, I was able to tap into an eternal breath of the spiritual realm on the other side. Uh, but it was it was quite profound um, in the sense that I... Um, you know, found everything by losing all control of my body, so to speak. And, you know, within the greatest fears that I had, I had the greatest degree of support all around me and the knowingness that I could never be, you know, harmed, damaged, and that I was a lot more than just my physical age of three years old and my body, which wasn't functioning due to the deprivation of oxygen and suffocation. Can you take us through what happened? Because at three, it's almost hard to imagine that you have an experience like that, that you remember. So how, how did you, like, did you at the time remember all of this? Or was it only sort of when you looked back, did people recount the story for you? And then you were like, oh, yeah, I remember when that happened at the playground and everything came flooding back. Mm -hmm. It's just so unusual to me. Yeah, well, you know, as a clinical therapist, I know I have you know, certain capital likes to stand on when it comes to understanding trauma. 
And there's nothing more traumatic, at least in my experience, than suffocating and being near death. And so when you have something so profound that at any age, you know, even if it's a past life, it tends to stick with you. Uh, and so people are able to have past life memories like we see in surviving death of those young boys who have come very matter-of-factly and discussed their uh, experiences. So to even in this body, this age, that would you know lend itself uh, as a possibility. Uh, but you combine the euphoria that I experienced in crossing over to the other side, combined with the suffocation, you know, that all added up to, you know, something that I remembered and not just the actual event, but, you know, surrounding events of that. Um, I remember very little actually from my childhood. I'm no different or infancy years, uh, but with something so profound and traumatic, uh, it stuck with me. Now, uh, to, to answer your question, there was an internalization of the of the experience that I really suppressed and repressed for quite some time. It wasn't until um, my later years, while I was given a lexicon and a vocabulary of the experience by picking up uh, the book by Betty Eighty, a New York Times bestselling book called Embraced by the Light. Uh, after reading that book, I had a language and a diagnosis of what I had. And so that gave me you know, more support, universality, and cohesion to be able to even discuss what I had because up until that point, it just would be, you know, fading on the surface and sometimes like a beach ball, I'd be trying to push it down in order to just kind of fit in as I, you know, relay uh, within my psychosociological development after this transformative near-death experience. So was this, do you feel like this experience shaped your life and how, in your early formative years, even if it was repressed? Yeah, I look at it um, like anything else, like a double-edged sword. And certainly in my lifetime, you know, there was a double-edged sword phenomenon with this. You know, at one, you know, and I talk about my book with this, uh, there is an isolative component to it where in a sense that I speak about in my book where I had interdimensional communication with with spirits and I was able to see, you know, factors and components on either side. And I understood clearly that my classmates in nursery school weren't privy to that and didn't understand that. And, uh, you know, that kind of took the rug under my feet combined with, you know, memories of waking up in the hospital bed and having a clear knowingness that no matter what I do or said at the time, you know, people surrounding me in my life and family would not be able to understand. And I just didn't have the verbiage externally uh, to, to really describe this series of events as much near-death experiences struggle even in later years. And so the isolation component was, was quite challenging as well as being more comfortable with that side than this side. I speak about this in my book that would often, you know, from going to the other side, I had a clearer pathway and understanding you know, through, you know, different kind of, I guess, you know, you'd say my brain was was deprived of oxygen. And so the filter between the two worlds uh, was a lot cleaner. And so I was able to seamlessly go to the other side a lot easier. And so I was more comfortable being there than here at times. But, you know, the emotional depth that I had um, and, and, and the ability just to feel, sense, you know, know things, you know, that to me was in a way worth it, that I was able to view life, not just from the body, but from the vantage point of the soul, which exceeded age, linear time, you know, and limitations of the body that some of my other peers in my age group may not have uh, had or at least integrated. So you talk in the book about what it was like growing up 
having had this experience. Um, and, and the struggles, I think, to relate to peers and also to deal with your own mental health, you know, as you were trying to understand this. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think a lot of people think near-death experience equals spiritual awakening immediately, right? And you were three. So right, right. it's hard to really understand what a spiritual, spiritually awakened three-year-old would look right. like. And it's not, it's not usually that linear, right? There's usually a lot of struggle processing the experience. Yeah. I mean, I was certainly early on, I was in this world, but not of this world. I was very much disconnected, you know, throughout times, um, as I speak to in the book. But looking back on it from a therapist perspective, I, I would say definitely the unresolved and unexpressed trauma and the suppressed and the repressed experience of crossing over um, and not being able to really express myself led to uh, a lot of anger, you know, defiance, um, and just frustration in regarding authoritative, authoritative kind of figures. In a sense that, you know, I was taken out of the conveyor belt of kind of people looking at me as an empty vessel, and just looking at me at my body, and I was able to kind of see past that where I was able to experience the soul, which was far greater. So there's a bit of like almost like age dysphoria that happened that I wasn't able to express or that led to power struggles with at times teachers and parents. And, uh, you know, I look at all my other siblings, they were perfect kids and I was uh, the real difficult child. And so something happened in between. We had the same meals, we had the same home, we had the same rooms, same education. Uh, but I was in it, you know, I probably spent almost half my time in therapist's office, uh, you know, versus over home. I, I could have probably paid a decent amount of rent there addition to my copays. So, uh, you know, it, 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 it didn't come with that as challenges. Uh, and I think that's a great point where a lot of people talk about the euphoric elements or the monopolization uh, of the other side and all things spiritual. Um, and I, I say this all the time, I don't pretend to be the heaven guy or the guy who's got monopolization of the other side, you know, but rather the guy who had this transformative experience and was able to have an awareness of how so much more is out there than what we are privy to. And it's you know, been a daily quest to understand God and the other side each and every day and learning to ground it, uh, spirituality, practicality kind of thing. So, how did, how did this sort of, when you finally realized what had happened to you, how old were you at the time? I know you said you read that book. Yeah, you know, so I would say like in my early 20s is when I read Betty's book. It was given by actually my godmother. At the time, I was taking different yoga practices and, um, you know, kind of meditating because in college, I I needed a lot more um, inside of me to handle the challenges in front of me. Um, I was in the lowest level of remedial courses in a community college. I had very little self-efficacy or belief system in myself. And thus I struggled with the ability to see past, you know, being in the lowest level of remedial courses in colleges. And so uh, from kind of engagement with different energy practices and Eastern, you know, philosophies, as well as good mentorships in my life that I call kind of earth angels that opened me up where it's just this kind of a collective holistic opening that wasn't just the near-death experience, but, you know, many different factors, you know, that led to this um, opening. Uh, but I would say, in, just in terms of publicly, uh, just in terms of giving the most confidence that this was indeed the path, was um, 
you know, I was in a yoga seminar and I speak about this in my book where I was just sitting there randomly, you know, waiting for the seminar to, to re-begin. And this random person came up to me and said, you have a big, you know, auric field and I see, and she just stopped for a moment. She said that I see you speaking in front of a lot of people. You're going to be a well-known healer one day. Just watch. You have a 10, 15 years, I guarantee you. And at the time I was kicked out of my house temporarily. I was living with my grandparents and I, I thought there was nothing there. And so there's a lot of allegorical references that I learned from my near-death experience, just in terms of entrusting the path inside of you to be able to mitigate and manage the challenges in front of you. And I think that's a universal principle and one of the greater gifts of my NDE and subsequent transformative experiences. So can you speak a little bit to some of your other transformative experiences? Because you in the book, you describe that you have these out-of-body experiences. That- yeah, yeah. Which to me, you know, that that was almost even more profound because near-death experience was a great experience. But when you have an NDE, usually, in, you know, near-death experiences, researchers will tell you it takes 20 to 30 years to kind of externalize the experience and to be able to find ways to integrate it. Where the out-of-body experience, I'm not sure regarding time frame, but it was like an experience that I was able to have an awakening, not of, you know, the other side, but of, of this planet in a sense that literally I woke up one day, you know, around this time when I was practicing all these modalities, and I was literally above my body. And I had no choice. I had to go to classes, but I would walk in the hallway and literally be just be looking down on myself. It was quite familiar, but at the same time, you know, my left brain is like, all right, get back into your body. Like, you know, it's kind of, uh, a bit of anxiety and just didn't know what to make of it or, or why it was happening. Uh, but uh, I experienced a profound experience out of all places in a synagogue, which I speak about in my book, was not the ideal place where I envision enlightenment. Uh, it was quite contrary and a little bit diametrically opposite to my experience with the other side. But, um, you know, I was literally out of my body and I, I flew out of my body and I was able to be conscious of you know, the egocentricism that people had or how they were just very separate and very top heavy in their own, you know, thoughts and, you know, stuff like that. And they didn't really, they were thinking, but they weren't feeling. And, you know, there's a lot of separation that they didn't recognize about. And so I was able to, to see the cohesive strand of energy connecting, you know, all participants in the room. And I almost had to get kicked out of the synagogue. If not, I might have been asked to leave because I was laughing so hard at just the um, amnesia that people have where how uh, they take themselves so seriously and how limited their awareness uh, is of this body without understanding of the interconnected parts and agents of this symmetry that we're all a part of. And so uh, that to me, you know, I think people can understand and conceptualize with the left brain, infinite, we are one, but you can't because you're using the left brain, which is linear. And to understand these nonlinear experiences, it's usually best by direct experiential reality. And so, you know, I'd read all these things and you just kind of one ear out the other, but to see it in front of you was a whole other ballgame. So explain to me what that looked like exactly. Like, did you, can you, can you take yourself out of your body or it just spontaneously happens? Well, essentially, you know, and I know there's different terminologies for this. I mean, some would just call like Kundalini awakening, I mean, at the time, I'm just sitting in my chair and I'm feeling this massive hose of fire in my back, you know, and just this intense fire in, in my back and my lower back and it was just blowing up. 
And my heart was, to best describe it, it felt like an ocean. Like literally I would touch it and it would just feel like I was putting my hands in a body of water. It was just insane. And then I'd feel spinning wheel of energy as well as a subtly opening up eyeball, my third eye, which would literally I'd feel like a very slowly blinking on and off, you know, eyeballs if like I was blinking my eyes and it would grow a lot stronger when I put my, you know, mind's eye there. And so I had all this experience combined with coolness in the back of my head. And so a lot of the understanding was just in terms of getting in touch with different elements. And then literally I felt myself like wings, like by my collarbone and shoulder. And I just literally just lifted, you know, again, out of my body in that chair. And so this, this intense experience allowed me to really take ride on an animal totem that I had. And I was flying literally over the synagogue, you know, with my animal totem. And I didn't do a Timothy Leary trip or LSD for those who know me. I'm, I'm a very clean guy. I don't drink, don't smoke. I'm an exercise guy. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a grounded Taurus. So, you know, that just told me that there's just so much in, more inside of us and it could happen, you know, at any time, as long as we're able to be open to, you know, energetic awakenings. And it happens when we're ready, you know, for these uh, experiences. But I think the second that we're able to identify with ourselves with more than a body and a soul, that would lend itself to be able to have these direct experiences of expansive consciousness. So does that still happen to you? Or was this sort of a one or two off time and, and yeah. it doesn't really it's, happen that much? Strange. You know, on and off, I'll have, you know, literally I'll take a tissue to my forehead and try to wipe it off. And there's literally no water there. The same thing, you know, with my heart, I'll be like, geez, am I sweating? So, I mean, at times, um, but nothing that, that profound. And uh, I, I'm very much grateful for that because, you know, I understand that that's always there, right? That's our true nature. I just, it's not the process of acclimation or, or becoming something, rather the process of burning away, you know, kind of all the stagnation to get in touch with your true nature. And at different moments in life, I, I do believe that we're at times meant to be a little bit more connected to, to the physical, because if we're over there, then what is the point of this? You know, but other times we need that expansiveness to kind of, you know, kind of expedite our evolution and, and awareness to remind ourselves that we're so much more than this body and, you know, this lifetime and, and uh, limiting thoughts that we've inherited. How do you understand those experiences as like, because I think that there are some people who would experience that as like disassociation or a panic attack, right? I mean, the, the symptoms that you've sort of described, like the heart racing, the like tingling coming out of your body. So how do you, I mean, I know you experienced it, but I think it's unique to talk to another clinician who's had these experiences. Like how do you... Um, how do you sort of differentiate those two? I would say normally, you know, when we're having all these experiences, um, there's not the euphoric element of it. And, uh, you know, with, when you get into the deeper elements of your soul, you have a lot more awareness to what's exactly happening. As it's unfolding, there's that human part that judges and analyzes. And, of course, when we get in our own head, we can make mountains out of mohills and look at the world's view you know, towards the spiritual lens. But I, I view this world and this reality and the other side is diametrically opposite, where this world is very limited. The other side, it's there's no limitations. Mm-hmm. And so I would say if it was based off of, 
you know, negativity, paranoia, demonic kind of thing, then, yeah, you know, you kind of worry, you know, by having a psychotic break or, you know, kind of like a schizophrenic episode or something like that. Uh, but this was euphoric and this was, you know, experience directly, you know, energy that, that was quite familiar to myself. And so I viewed it as more of a deprogramming and awakening from limitations rather than, you know, something mm -hmm. pathologized or, mm -hmm. or, or just dangerous to myself. Um, you know, I think obviously we could look at it from many different angles and mm -hmm. maybe I'm talking to someone that's the way they see it. Fine. But I say, if it's helpful, if it's resourceful, uh, if you're able to integrate it, what's the issue? Mm -hmm. <laughs> So. How did your family respond to this? Did they, well, you come from an Orthodox family, yeah, Jewish Orthodox. Yeah. Did yeah. they, um, were they, did they feel like, oh, this explains him? <laughs> you know why? Yeah. Or yeah, was yeah. it like, <laughs> let's not talk about that? Like, what was their response to that, to you yeah. coming out with all of this? I mean, my, my family is more invested in the here now than the hereafter. You know, so that they're not into the angels and fairies, you know, rainbows kind of thing. You know, they're very much grounded workers and they're humanitarians and more kind of planted, you know, very grounded in this world. And, you know, intellectual kind of left wing kind of people. So and my father's also a psychotherapist, too. But I, I really separated church and state, no pun intended. I, I really kept this inside of myself in a sense that intuitively, I think it's very important to uh first timing is everything and also to be very selective with who and what you share regarding your vulnerability and regarding your experiences. You know, because if you share it to someone who might put salt on it, you know, you just kind of have like a rainy day in your sunshine. And so I had this inner knowing that I didn't necessarily need, you know, a therapist or my parents approval for. Uh, but probably I would say two years ago, I bad choice of words, but came out of the NDE you know, kind of hidden closet. And um, I, I just kind of spoke to them matter of factively for the first time in over 20 years about it. You know, it's just kind of like subtly we'd have conversations about it. And, and actually, you know, the response was a lot more positive than I thought. And I even ended up learning something that I kind of limited myself in a sense that if you listen to a prior interview that I have, you'll find that I'll say I was four or five years old when I had my experience in a sense that I didn't think in my left brain that it was that possible to have those memories at that age or to be able to understand that that was that long ago. And so when my mother told me that it was September of 1993, right before the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, uh, that, that floored me uh, because in a sense, there was, I'm sure some part of me that knew that, but again, I was judging it, you know, from the human point and said, that must've been five, six years old. I know it was a young kid and obviously end of years with timeframes were not, you know, like that. So, so there was, there was a lot to be gained, but after reading the book, I, th I think they were able to understand some of the pieces of just resistance, defiance, opposition, and uh, some of the tantrums and OCD type tendencies that I had just you know, this kind of like how this experienced in a good way, you know, set the trajectory of my life. But also I think a part of that, you know, had, had its, was, wasn't immune from its challenges of integration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like the like knowing what how expansive and amazing the spiritual world is at the age of three, and then having to come back into a physical body and right. live as a human, right, a spiritual being in a human body, knowing that, 
and struggling with like the what it means to grow up and and having had this experience and not have the words to put to that experience <laughs> seem I mean I can understand how that would have really right. made growing up quite a challenge. Yeah. I mean anger and I talk about this in my book the first emotion I experienced when I came back to this world and you could interview my mother and she'll attest this was intensified anger. Uh, I woke up in a hospital bed and it was just such a whirlwind difference of being in the euphoric, you know, other side around, you know, angels and spiritual guides and, you know, soul family, all of that. And then you wake, wake up in this cold hospital bed, you know, with a man trying to work on you. Uh, I was so, I, I was so agitated in a sense. It wasn't personal with him, but it was just such a whirlwind change of events so instantly that I had nothing really to do but to just kind of get angry. And so my mother told me, that I literally kicked the doctor and ran around the room and I was just in a fit of rage in a sense that like you have this experience and you turn down heaven and then you're put back, you know, in a cold hospital bed in a, in a very vulnerable position. You know, it wasn't Joan and Melissa Rivers interviewing me on the red carpet after that. It was, you know, very vulnerable and just, you know, cold and scary, you know, such a transition that I just couldn't express my emotions with. So... Have you met other NDEers who have had early childhood NDEs? Because you're really the first person that right. I've come across that's had that. And it, it just makes me wonder, like, you would you would imagine this isn't something that only happens in adulthood, but that oh, kids no. don't have the words to understand it. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like, um, it's a little unidimensional with, with uh, you know, a lot of the people who have had NDEs. I think you'll find that people are working... You know, a lot of times for some reason, they're working in media jobs, I find, or just, you know, kind of corporate kind of jobs. And they have this obstruction of consciousness in the shakeup period. And then they can't go back to that intense kind of businessy kind of world. And then that leads itself into a whole other worldview. Uh, but, you know, kind of like Benjamin Button's, my experience where you have this, all this wisdom. And then to just integrate when the world's telling you you're growing up, you feel in a way that you're actually shrinking down and losing mm -hmm your true wisdom. So, you know, what people see is evolution. It's almost like a devolution that, that occurs, but I know I haven't necessarily encountered much. I, I'm hopeful because I understand coming out of the near-death experience, uh, you know, publicly, there's a lot of cynics and skeptics that come at us. That's just a part of the territory. Now you combine that being an infant. I mean, I get all kinds of stuff coming my way and uh, I can understand that, you know, when people, you know, have a view of just their body as who they are, I could understand, you know, their point of view, you know, but I think if we view ourselves as uh, eternal, limitless souls, not defined by this body, this time frame, this name, then I think some of those uh, kind of higher view points of consciousness would be able to comprehend it a bit more. But I know there's a lot of research on it. For instance, her name is PMH Atwater. Um, you know, I know she wrote the book, something called Angels or like Little Angels, something like that. But she's a specialist with an in, you know infant and childhood near-death experiences. You know, I know Raymond's on my cover, and there's a lot of other near-death experience researchers. Um, but PMH Atwater is fantastic. She's written like over 30 books or something, you know, on the topic. But she really, and I met her personally, so she knows about my story, and she's able to certainly validate it through her own research that yes, indeed it is possible to have clear recollection of this, uh, not bound by years or time and mm. stuff like that so but i haven't 
had too many interactions with direct infant near-death experiences, but I'm I mean, hoping it, that my experience makes, empowers others. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense if kids are, you know, sharing their um, past life experience, past life memories and things like that, you would imagine that maybe more people will start to share their stories if they've had them. Absolutely. I mean, that's how human nature works. When Kevin Bannister broke the minute mile, more people were just instantaneously able to get under five or six minutes and do that, as, as you see that as a possibility. And so, you know, I think it takes vul- great vulnerability you know, and strength to come out. But the more that you do that, the more that others will be able to come out. I mean, my goal is for not people to be attached to my near-death experience or my story, but rather to empower it to their own stories. Because you know, I don't see myself as anything different other than just a kid who's suffocated and, you know, it has more recollection um, and maybe more, more pros and cons with that. But I think in a way we all come from that place. We all go to that place. No one has um, a monopolization of that. And the more that people are able to take ownership and empowerment um, of their own consciousness, I, I think the more symmetry we'll have between that side and this side. Has your dad ever had anybody in his practice that experienced this? Do you know? Not really, but I, it's funny. I was, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, when I got my near-death experience, I was looking, you know, because I'm a therapist and I want to be able to understand this you know, from a medical, psychological perspective. You know, it gave me a lot more confidence to go in publicly, especially given the vantage point and how people try to, you know, say those got you kind of questions and stuff mm-hmm. like that. That's all part of it. But I was reading a book by Dr. Kenneth Ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Lessons from the Light. My dad looks at it. He goes, Kenneth Ring. I go, yeah, what about him? You know him? And he goes, yes, he was my psychology professor at the University of Connecticut, like in, I don't want to give his wage, but, you know, over 30, 40 years ago. And so at the time, Kenneth wasn't like this big NDE star. He was just, you know, typical professor in stores, Connecticut, whatever. And so, you know, that was kind of like a funny experience where he He's like, Dr. Kenneth Ring, like, I know him. He was my psychology professor. Right. And but, now he's one of the top people in NDE research. Yeah. Yeah, I know. He's, he's, he's a legend and icon in our community. I know um, Laura Lynn Jackson talks about him in her, in her book. Um, geez, what's her first book's name? Um, the Light. The, one, the, the Light the Between. Light between right? Yeah. Yeah. So she mentions a reading that she had on Dr. Kenneth Ring, and she was able to read his auric field and everything around him is quite profound. I actually contacted her after. I know she's an alumni of your show too. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, doc, I haven't been able to get in touch with him, but I'm trying to find a way. So I think he'd be pretty pretty blown away by that. But my, my father more specializes in the higher autism spectrum. Um, so he works mostly with, you know, kids, you know, families with their defined autistic kind of ADHD tendencies. I'm not, you know, on the spectrum, but I'm sure, you know, my defined behaviors might have kind of swayed him in the way where he had that kind of direct experiences to be able to help mm-hmm. others. So, you know, and my mother's more in early childhood intervention. So it's funny how both my parents kind of specialize, you know, in the years where I was most difficult in, but I gave them a run for my money. There's no question about it. <laughs> so before we wrap up today, what does your clinical work look like hmm? having had this experience? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I try to be a good social worker. You know, that's, that's, that's my hat that I wear. And part of that is understanding and integrating social work principles. And I know social work psychology under APA, American Psychological Association, but really our job is to meet the client where they're at, you know, not to enforce uh, belief systems, uh, you know, and to be able to hold space in an objective, you know, kind of manner. And so 
Um, I do get referrals, you know, a lot more regularly. Obviously, it's since my book come out, came out with people who have had these experiences and they just don't know what to do with them. They're feeling depressed, borderline suicidal ideation, stuff like that. And so I work with those kind of clients. But within my own line of practice, um, I work, you know, full time in a mental health clinic, um, kind of like in a dual mental health as well as recovery oriented setting for clients, you know, with addictive patterns and stuff like that. It's mostly kind of adults, but I'm able to integrate some of these practices indirectly. Like I was running around three to four mindfulness groups per week uh, mm-hmm. within my clinic. And you know, my clinic is, I could say it's a bit of a Medicaid mill like other clinics do. And so, you know, we tend to attract all populations, but stuff. largely a lot of it is a lower socioeconomic, you know, kind of population and clientele that comes our way. And so I noticed kind of like a disadvantage perspective with people who had resources and finances to be able to attend these fancy, nice seminars. And that's great. But I, I noticed kind of a disadvantage just in terms of accessibility, you know, to, to healing modalities. And so I took that upon myself to run, you know, several mindfulness meditation workshops per week. And I guess my near-death experience has really influenced me to be there for the little guy as much as I could, which kind of like speaks to other previous lifetimes, but that's just the one that I'm most passionate about. You know, the one who's facing a lot of socio socioeconomic challenges and you know, feeling uncertain and just kind of like the back is against the wall. And you know, those those type of clients I think tend to do well, you know, with with more of just talk therapy. I think they're looking more for resources and tools, you know, to be able to mitigate and manage manage the challenges and cumulative disadvantages that they face day to day. Uh, so I do that as well as privately Know, past life regression and hypnosis and I, I really do that because and I speak about this in my book I had not just in my NDE or you know memories of it you know but also throughout childhood I had a lot of traumatic um, past life experiences that I remembered that kept on kind of haunting me and I had no idea sometimes it was dreams sometimes it was an awakened state and so what I, what I wanted to do is to empower people to really be able to understand that not only are, are we infinite beings, but we have infinite amount of lifetimes. And I think part of it is, you know, being able to understand our books, not just by looking on the page that we stepped into, by understanding prior chapters. So the greater messages are no longer needed to be repeated as the lessons are integrated and embraced. And so I think um, I try to expedite people's evolution within this lifetime so that you don't have to wait 50, 60 years to die to have clarity. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for your time today if P- and your flexibility because we move this around a lot. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Where can people find um, more information about you and your book? Yeah, so if people are interested in learning more about me, you know, services through past life regression, hypnosis, or if you're in New York State, you know, psychotherapy session, um, you could look at my website and my book is there too at jacoblcooper.com. It's jacoblcooper.com. And there you could look at my book too. There's a whole section of life after breath uh, for those of you interested, um, as well as I have monthly Facebook groups open to the community with different topics. So they're usually at the last Monday of each month. This time it's going to be February 22nd at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the topic that I'm having is kind of owning your inspired story in a way and kind of helping people to really take ownership of their stories. It doesn't necessarily mean that you write a book. You could could be a blog, but being able to not be defined by your story, but rather to um, integrate it, you know, in a way and take ownership of it. So 
define not not define your story, not be defined by, but to define. So mm-hmm. I so love that's that. Open, that's open to the public. Facebook Lives at Jacob Cooper LCSW, where we have different topics, all related to higher consciousness, healing, you know, in, in a different um, uplifting, inspirational topics for the public to attend. So. Well, thank you again for your time today and for sharing your remarkable experience with us. Thank you, Dr. Amy. I really appreciate being an honored guest in your program and hope some of this was helpful for uh, listeners across. I know. It always is. It always it always resonates with people. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.